Here at the Earth Hotel, we like to focus on some subjects that are a little heavy sometimes. But after last week's very special episode, the family here at the Earth Hotel thought it would be a good idea to take a break from the crazy world in there and have a real heart-to-heart with a friend. And we encourage you to do the same. But not just with your friends. The Bible says to love your enemies, too. And there's nothing more important to the cast members here at the Earth Hotel than soothing the worries we all have about nefarious forces seeking our destruction and turning the other gleeful cheek like good lambs of the Great Shepherd. You know, our accountant Persephone told me just the other day, she said to me, she said, I feel so full of purpose here. It's about family. And when I cash the inky black checks from our loving benefactors at Syzygy Group, my heart is so overflowing that I could just give a big hug to the whole world. I can smile at that nice man who's been following me. I don't have to worry about the gentle policeman who told me I have nothing to worry about. I just got back in my car and drove home. When I hear our friends at work talk like that, I can easily forget the piercing gaze of the man who brings the mail. And that's what life's really about. So from our family to yours out there, I want to welcome you back to the fun, easy talking that's made us a household favorite in your market. Thanks very much. Enjoy the show. Nothing brings joy into our hearts like fresh new faces for the family. Our partners in sound making are Substrate Radio, and we'll tip you off to their schedule right now. They run music programming 24-7 with a spread of specialty shows like yours truly. Monday is the Jackie Lowe Show, the wizardess of mix herself. Psychic Tuesdays predict your music past into the future via host Paul Wilm. And we join you this Wednesday's and all Wednesdays for your surreal bending, all three shows 8 to 10 p.m. Friday, we hear the classic hip-hop show from the venerable DJ Supreme, 7 to 9 p.m. Saturday mornings, re-rest with Sleep and Cinema, 9 to 10 a.m. And start your Sunday with Wake Up, Boo, 10 o'clock to noon, and Pastime Paradise carrying you into the scalding afternoon from 12.30 to 1.45. You can find all this information and more at substrateradio.com from whence they stream the sound. Dankeschön. Your inset headlines are coming up in just a moment, but first I'd like to give you a little tease about the ongoings and upcomings of In Lobby Sounds. 
our house propaganda music label. Some administrative fires put things on hold after the release of Autopilot's self-titled album and the 40 Days EP by Trees on the Moon. But in the interim, Autopilot released Another Way and Kanagawa, and as you'll hear at the end of the show, Trees on the Moon compiled a quarantine suite called Limbs, and you can look out for The Abyss by Autopilot, currently in production. The masked encouragers of Quixote, the venerable Oyster Guard, are completing their first album and working out a collaborative internet improv project as well, soon for your feasting ears. Finally, very soon, you'll hear a newly completed mix of a song I've been working with for a while, Wasp Shirt Sax, featuring my good friend Ryan Brown on upright bass. I'll stick a tasty single on the B-side and put that out in the coming weeks. Thanks for your time in the sub-lobby of our greatest dreams. To learn more and view our discography, go to theearthhotel.org slash inlobbysounds. Merci beaucoup. These are your inset headlines for August 1st through the 8th. Roll it, Johnny! Aries. The coordinates are written down somewhere from another time. An impossible lake, a mountain to climb. The magnitudes, the categories, none of these will help reveal your territories. In a purgatorial state, the fire's elate, though not contained on the torch, more so in your woods. Sagittarius. You feel the same as you did yesterday. You had a carrier pigeon deliver your emotions to you, for you could not decipher them yourself, clearly. You feel the same as you did a year ago, when the wound was still open. Pisces. You cannot relate to those who end the conversation full and through. If you want to pray in the night with the fishes, don't take the flock of seagulls. They'll stab your back and fight over which part of your flesh they'll consume to grow stronger and stronger. Never trust their tricks. These have been your inset headlines for August 1st through the 8th. We like to send our vibrating, somnolent thanks to Syzygy Group. Syzygy, the right of might is night with fright. As we return to a weekly schedule and I get back into the flow of posting on social media about the show, I'm continuing to look for a better way to reach people more easily. Considering that social media has come to a point of rarely showing us a consistent flow of our friends, I thought we'd go old-fashioned and have a newsletter. In that stead, a good way to stay updated and engaged with the show is to sign up for that newsletter at theearthhotel.org. Right now it consists of the written contents of the week's show, lyrics to the sonatas and the inside cut-up reports, for instance, with extra informative links on topics or news stories and relevant music that we've played. We'll never share your information or spam your inbox, just keep you updated once a week on our Furious Lobby's progress up the spiraling stair. As an extra demonstration of our gratitude, each week's newsletter will also contain a downloadable track from our archives of unused, unreleased, but not unloved material in the sweltering music dungeon that I call the laptop, or instrumentals from the episode before they are released on future Earth Hotel music collections. That's all, all. Many thanks. We're going to speak a little later about our upcoming playlist of local music. But for a taste, here's a list of the albums we'll be featuring in the short future, sung to the tune of Dave Brubeck's Take 5, if it was played along the giant steps changes. Jazz memes forever. 
future trees still in Cocomalia, pink pyramids, plutonium burrito, Contra Club we stand, Hollywax wing, Savage Bad Sandy, and Lil White Bitch. Seasonal sales of Gosha, they were all boy or girl, and witches, Walden, Miss Alyssa, Joseph, and Paul Bear, Bryant, all of Tony's stuff. There's Kalama, Witches, Williams, Brother, there's Blowfish, and Condor Club, and Joe DeVita, and the Hauser Switzer Split. And we got Jimmy Braun and no radio. We got Moth Face from Gardendale, got a long bony arms. And Flesh Narc, Social Circle, Poly Action is great. Poly Panic's got stuff, Blip, Bird, and Heel Turn. Tony Hernandez puts out an album a month. Man, the pasta in the jam. Get on. If you listen back to our Minisode U, episode 54 with Brad Davis, and any of our conversations with Joel Nelson of Montvallo, you'll hear about the indelible influence that was made on improvised music as a whole and the Birmingham music community by Davy Williams, a consummate artist and dedicated adventurer in sound, who passed away after a lifetime of playing in the spring of 2019. Minisode U is a reading of a treatise on his work and that of his musical partner, LaDonna Smith, by Joel, who has had his own indelible effect on the artistic communities in Montevallo and Birmingham, and now Oakland. The world had the good fortune of Davy and LaDonna's collaborations with Joel, who recently put out a posthumous project with Davy called Allies. The liner notes state, One definition of kitsch is art that makes you feel that you're feeling the right thing. The series of very brief recordings of Davy Williams and Joel Nelson suspends the operation of that, presents instead aesthetic objects. Very alert, close duos, tending toward brief, sharp sounds juxtaposed in something like bursts of fireworks. Fireworks not in the sky, though, but down here. Not spectacular fireworks. Briefly suspended lights. Fireflies. In a way, it's like a palate cleanser, but then you want to taste it again, but it's too quick to taste. It's a palate cleanser, though. After hearing it, you taste the sound around you. I would say again, I may be wrong. There may be a lot of long, blurred sounds, but I would say brief, sharp sounds that then leave you able to at least note, if not hear, silence. The tender way the two instruments accompany each other and the way the effects sought for seem to be incremental not blow you away star turns, helps create a kind of calm, a sense that these are aesthetic objects, not struggles for dominance. Corrupt, naive, infantile listener that I am, though, I was able to create program notes for number four, despite the cunning and virtuoso focus of these two musicians. I jotted them down continued through the rest of the album, then when I listened again, my little narrative didn't seem to work at all. I thought it must be the wrong one. No. It just didn't suggest the same thing that time. So I worry that I may be feeling the wrong thing. Such good music. Johnny Coley. And words from Joel. I'm happy to finally be able to share this duo record. Davy and I had been talking about making an album since the summer of 2017, when I was visiting Birmingham, Alabama. We finally recorded a year later at East Village Arts, a local music venue open to experimental and improvised music run by LaDonna Smith. It was the only time I played with Davy, 
and all the tracks are completely open improvisations from that afternoon. He called me the second to last week in March 2019, wanting to continue the process of putting this record out, and unfortunately passed away April 5th, 2019. It was an honor to have been able to record this record with him and share it in his memory. Now ribbons in the ether, my heart goes out to Davy, and on this shifting coil to Joel out there in California. This is a track from their record Allies, called Hopeless Curtains at the Wrong Time. The Dream Ritual of the Nasarima In the research conducted by this department, the appearance of a phenomenon which began in small areas of the world has been found to be in the process of expanding to a global concern. Various anthropologists have addressed aspects of this phenomenon as they are founded in a particular culture, the Nasarima, as observed by Minor in 1956 and Thompson in 1972. It is the view of this department, however, that essential connective observations about the cultural psychology of this people were overlooked. 
insofar as those previous entries were primarily concerned with body rituals and manipulation of the environment respectively. The inevitable next step is to connect those two aspects, as we will attempt to do here. The Nasarima culture was thought to be proven extinct, Thompson, 1972, but a recent explosion of disseminated cultural information from the people has shown them to have undergone an intense period, first of internal unrest, then of re-establishment of previously latent hierarchies within a short time. It was during this period that Thompson concluded his study on the ongoing environmental effects of the Nasarima, which surely at the time could have been misinterpreted as an immediate collapse. However, due to the political and social reshuffling which continued for a decade after Thompson's inquiry, an active expansion of the Nasarima's global influence seemingly saved the people from destruction. The observed period of turmoil was followed by a misleading spell of peace, which was disrupted by economic instability, which directly preceded not only a substantial increase in prosperity and wealth inequality, which eventually proved to be parabolic, but by the rise of a quasi-religious authoritarian power structure, by which its design appears to be subtle and slow to notice, and is primarily concerned with ethnic and class division. The development of this power structure originated in the unrest and turnover of social hierarchies during the period of Thompson's report, and matured over the elapsing 60 years. The phenomenon which is the focus of this review was first globalized by the cultural suzerainty of the Nasarima, then concentrated within their borders as the prolific elements of control affected their social and psychological behavior. These conditions created an environment in which the majority of individuals made available comprehensive detailings of their lives as a voluntary, if not culturally compulsory, practice of social ritual. The political and social effects of this practice are numerous, and other scholars continue to thoroughly explore their ramifications. Regardless, the conclusion stands that despite the unique predicament of the Nasarima, nearly every culture on the planet has been shaped by their tendencies. It is the claim of this department that the proliferation of the Nasarima lifestyle has resulted in a deleterious effect on the collective psyche of the species. The trends we will explore here are not novel or unique to the Nasarima, nor are they fundamentally flawed as previously practiced. It is the development and expansion of these psychological structures which have mutated a solution into a problem, observable throughout contemporary cultures. That problem is isolation. Particular attention was paid by Minor in the peculiar necessity of a designed shrine room in the body ritual he observed. This shrine room was intensely focused on privacy and thoroughly equipped and designed for purported manipulation of the body via ritual contact with designated tools. Thompson's work indicated, even as early as 1972, the segmentation not only of personal abodes into specialized rooms, but whole landscapes into increasingly tightly controlled areas of facsimile, divided by ribbons referred to as stirts. Quote, In general, their primary function seems to have been to geometricize the landscape into units that could be manipulated by a few men. The stirts also served as environmental dividers. Persons of a lower caste lived within the boundaries of defined areas, while those of the upper caste were free to live where they chose. 1972. As inequality and social division increased in the Nasarima society, these trends became exacerbated. Quote, this group, whose rank bordered on that of a non-regimented priestly caste, lived in areas that were often guarded by electronic systems. There is no evidence to suggest that any restraints, moral, sociological, or engineering, were placed on their self-determined enterprises. 
Thompson, 1972. Further study has revealed a number of bizarre establishments within Nasariman cities. For one, as addressed in Thompson's review, agricultural information has shown that the majority of food was grown in vast industrial facilities, often with immense machines, the role of which has yet to be determined, as they bear little resemblance to equipment used for traditional food production methods. This, in combination with preserved remains of storage vessels, leads contemporary scholars to believe that a paranoia of disease and surveillance had occupied the population, in addition to their pre-existing obsession with privacy, and that extreme measures were taken to obscure the contents of their food behind code names and extensive packaging, perhaps to protect their identities on the transit to the city centers. Similarly, the cities featured food preparation buildings that seemed to serve specialty collections of foods outside the home as a novelty. These so-called Naroatsers, known by an array of strange icons and names, as well as the numerous stations designated to maintain persons on the steerts with colorful foods, demonstrate that the traditional food patterns of previous ages had been upended and externalized beyond the home. An additional, fascinating recurrence in these cities was also found, incredibly prolific but overlooked. The Litos appeared to be mass domiciles in previous reviews, but further analysis has shown them to be fundamentally different in their supposed function. By plotting the occurrence of these large, segmented buildings in proportion to the population, analysts of this department posit that the Litos served the purpose of simulating anonymity for a short time for part of the population liminal residences which were meant to be occupied alone or in small groups. The uniformity of these spaces is comparable to large esifos and latispo ritual centers, but none contain specialized rooms as they do for work or production purposes. It should also be noticed that, traditionally, Nasarima society has not been observed to hold meditation rooms as in Eastern cultures, designated spaces for rumination or contemplation without a practical purpose making these Lito rooms somewhat of an outlier. Our induction comes from the style in which these spaces were decorated. Some were heavily stylized and otherworldly, particularly in cities near bodies of water, but all contained identical collections of rooms, which at the time of investigation showed no trace of use. Our claim is supported by an identifiable disruption in the recorded activities of these facilities, Asifos, Litos, and Latispo. For a period of over a year, precisely 57 years after the beginning of the Nasarima's unrest, a sharp drop-off could be observed in the state of the Litos and Asifos, while the uses of Emos and Latispo were greatly increased. This indicates that many Nasarima were unwell and took to their abodes to prevent their distress, seemingly caused by an outside source. Their rituals became intensely important, but more and more took place inside the abode, and Litos were almost universally shunned. For this connection to be fully realized, one more factor must be demonstrated. The critical ritual, as mentioned previously, was missing from previous analyses, for it bore too much resemblance to our own, their method of sleep. Documentation of abodes from this period showed that the sleeping quarters took on an immense importance, having become highly decorated and personalized areas for individuals with unique artifacts and decor throughout. The contrast was striking between this practice and the stark anonymity of the Litos, whose sleeping quarters featured only beds and electronic boxes in addition to a body ritual chamber. It is the claim of this review that the Nasarima used the Litos as sleep ritual chambers en masse to remove distractions or personal effects found in their domestic lives from their sleep ritual, thus removing their personal context from their dream experiences. This behavior suggests a predomination of dreams taking hold in the Nasarima culture, with the Litos' time of prominence 
lasting from a few decades before the first unrest, to the incident which truncated their use. It is possible that the Nasarima felt that their psychological stability was under some kind of threat, and the distress that led them to the body ritual centers was a related phenomenon. It is supposed by consultants of this review that the Nasarima withdrew their use of the Litos as an averse reaction to this threat, and took their sleep ritual back into their abodes as a personalized form of the practice, being one of the only practices they could do within their homes and with no external supplies. It should be noted that the sleep patterns of the Nasarima were also affected by small tablets with casings of various colors and faces always of black mirror. As we have not been able to determine the uses of this device, it is supposed by this department that the Nasarima had opted to mass-produce a scrying mirror through which they may perhaps make contact with the dead or beings of the dream realm within their mythology. It has been anecdotally shown that most Nasarima would spend several hours before sleeping engaged with this mirror, putting considerably more time into their dream ritual than even the body ritual observed by Minor. The objective of the sleep ritual is unclear, but three important factors can be identified from surviving public displays and documentation. One, sleep is scientifically connected to mental health, this of course being true for all human societies, and the deficit of quality sleep was epidemic among the Nasarima leading up to this period. Two, during this late period of crisis, much of the public dialogue was oriented around substantiating the subconscious life into the waking life with concepts like living the dream, follow your dreams, and the mysterious religious slogan, Mered Nasarima, which occupied the forefront of the public consciousness and has since been understood to correspond with mythological dream visions of historical figures. Three, another curious cultural trend from this period is the obsession with the Neknatsid Lakos, translated in a groundbreaking project to relate to the psychological concept of masking. It is this collective fixation with the subconscious which seems to have driven this people to intense isolation and reappropriation of their sleep rituals. The final element to be considered does not come from observable artifacts or relics of this area of the world. Again, the cache of personal information made public by the Nasarima, a trend which bizarrely and worryingly is also disseminating into the global culture, and the very recent breakthroughs in translation allowed this organization to provide several pertinent accounts of the dream rituals of individuals. Considering our subject, anecdotal evidence may be sufficient in providing connective tissue to the mystery of their state. In a sample of 100 reports conducted via interview, Syzygy, 70 AN, the conceptual dream categories of the Nasarima are as follows. 1. Familial settings and characters based in memory or projection of personal experience, often featuring familiar spaces and circumstances. 2. Archetypal. Situations are presented with an internal logic which has significance to the dreamer by way of direct interpretation, instead of contextual familiarity. This category has the seemingly rarer subset of truly archetypal dreams, such as those set in nature or more abstract settings. 3. Segmented. As far as can be discerned, this group of dream contents is a new phenomenon, that which we indicated in the opening of this report. These dreams consist of disparate settings and locations which are unfamiliar, and in many cases platonic or blank. In many accounts, these unrelated and interdependent rooms were described as illusionary spaces in the void, fake rooms, and purpose-built to appear that way, Syzygy, 70 AN. In some cases, 
Long stretches of hallways with many doors connect these areas, and in a select few accounts, projections were encountered that were blank and automaton-like, though indicating malicious intentions to the dreamers. This department refers to these reports as Leto dreams, drawing connections between the empty, purposeless cells of the abandoned Leto and the dreamed labyrinth reported in Nasarima and foreign citizens alike. The appearance of this Leto dream and its apparent prominence at the time of the emptying of the Leto leads this department to the following conclusion. The Nasarima, for all that has been indicated in previous study, is a peculiar people that appears to have sustained themselves on fantasy. The denial of death and decay, the disastrous manipulation of their environment, and the disturbing puzzle of their sleep lives indicate a culture wandering through that which cannot be called conscious. The stuff of dreams. Their mysterious retirement to their abodes to superstitiously and secretly examine their sleeping lives may utterly doom the Nasarima in confusion, or provided means by which it may find its way out of delusion into reality. It is the conviction of these authors that it is the duty of all global citizens to learn from their example, observe their inscrutable motto, Li no yitik, asa eb las u, and examine our own subconscious contents so that we may avert such disaster from becoming prolific. Syzygy Group, Year 75 AN. Now it's time for the guests this evening. I met Will through autopilot, and when I heard his solo stuff, I was so pleasantly thrilled. I try to keep an eye out for local songwriters who revel in their songcraft, who really love putting the pieces together and coming out with something maybe a little bit more than a song. As I came to find out, that reveling in William takes the form of the pursuit of self-expression. What a gift that the result is shared with the world. We had a wonderful conversation about his creative process and history and music back in the railroad stillness of Montevallo. Before we go to the interview, you'll hear a track from his new album, Too Close for Comfort, called Dinosaur Teeth. Stay anywhere with us. Such a set of molars. Like a jungle or a trip to Manhattan, if he made enough greens, he would no longer be jagged. But he was at the bottom of profit. There was nothing he could do about it. Wait. 
finally accepted the fact he'll never be a hook like the other boys. But his caring mother only wanted the best for him. She only wanted her boy to make it in the professional world. So demanding, a boy in question, so tempestuous. So he finally decided, fuck it, I'll do what I must to please the demon. Mr. Trees, Mr. Mr. On the Moon. Oh, we've been going. It's been going for a long time. Okay. Oh, um, God. So let's get down to what you've been looking forward to, I'm sure, all day is talking about yourself. Um, yeah. <laughs> ah, geez. It's exciting because I'm probably going to be talking like a caveman because that's that's what quarantine does to a man. You <laughs> come out of the cave with a torch in your hand and you're like, oh, is this how society was? You kind of forget how to talk. I've had a really good time the last couple of weeks listening back to your discography, to all of your stuff on Bandcamp. I didn't make it to the SoundCloud, unfortunately. That's it's fine. Nothing, nothing on my SoundCloud is too official as of right now. Songs I make. This is your fifth album coming out, Too Close for Comfort. Is that yeah. fifth collection of yeah. stuff? Second, like, LP, but fifth record release. Yeah. The first couple of EPs, especially Loom, are like heavy dance almost. I'm interested in how you moved from something like 40 Days to pretty straightforward electronic pop yeah. songs. These are like well-arranged pop tunes, but with enough words to chew on and that kind of 
monologue running throughout the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really ironic because um, with 40 Days, I think I was expressing myself through spontaneous modulation with uh, synthesizers and, you know, just kind of making a collection of sound through those experiments. I think just the climate of, of the world is kind of ironic because I made 40 Days in a time where everything was relatively sound compared to now. You know, like I think Wims is kind of the transition because I wrote Wims in quarantine and it was during a time where um, I just felt really nihilistic and just kind of put my emotions into sound, the pessimism, the nihilism of feeling locked up in quarantine. We're still in quarantine, but this record is kind of like almost like a, a release of emotions. Maybe that's what I call this thing. Yeah, it's like an of... opening up. You know, you go through a tunnel and then you're in the yeah, yeah, valley like, or whatever. I hope it rings true to um, the real world, but this record does kind of feel like a, a light at the end of the tunnel, a kind of escapism from everything that is happening both internally, externally, everything in between. I'm really compelled by that emotional aspect to it. It's really emotional and really vulnerable, but it doesn't have like a bright eyes kind of vulnerability to it. I've never seen like aching vulnerability paired with that kind of hope. Just like with the previous electronic stuff, it's dark, but it's not gloomy or brooding. Yeah. There's, it's always like a, a nice clip through that. Yeah. I mean, and especially with this record, Too Close for Comfort, while I was writing it, you know, I kind of found that I learned more about myself through, through writing, through existentialism, through transcendentalism, whatever you want to call it. I feel like I kind of found myself as a person, not, not found myself, but like I learned more about what I think. I learned more than what I would have just thinking, just pondering, but through writing it out, putting words to what, how I feel. It just kind of creates that contrast of open, not too close. It's, it's there. Is it there? The music definitely speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. Even if you took all the lyrics out, if you took all the vocals off, the instrumentals are really interesting and musically compelling. Yeah, and, and a kind of contrast between what I'm saying, what's being played. I think they both stand out on their own. They also kind of have a juxtaposition. They play off each other well. Yeah, but it's not an ironic contrast. No, no, definitely not. It's such a nice balance. It's like the harmonic context of the music shines a light on other parts of that emotion that add all this complexity. Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of juxtaposition moments in the record. I guess just something that comes to mind is um, in Dinosaur Teeth, I talk about the story of a guy named Dinosaur Teeth, but is obviously not myself, coming to terms with his teeth, kind of like a, a Bildungsroman, a kind of coming-of-age story of being at terms with the fact that your teeth are not exactly beyond repair, but seem as though they're, they're beyond repair. Everyone's telling you to fix your teeth, fix your teeth, I don't want to. You come to terms with them, you're forced to get them fixed, so you kill yourself. You know, talking about a dude killing himself while still kind of remaining optimistic, I think, is that, is that kind of weird, pulls the right heartstrings, kind of singing, writing style that I've got in this record. Yeah, you don't see it coming at all. Mm -hmm. It can't be inferred from the music. Like, it's very clear that you are trying to express yourself as opposed to, like, you know, I got a lot of feelings, I'm going to express myself, yeah. I'm going to make music for that. Yeah, just like displaying the emotions, exactly. displaying concretely what you're feeling, Yeah, rather than creating a, a sort of realm of feeling. <laughs> like, yeah. I guess that's the way to put it. Yeah, I've been in this write-up, and up till now I've avoided making the Paul Simon comparison, 
your lyrics and this step that you've taken into being a songwriter is pages from a diary of someone trying to figure things out. Yeah. And doing it in this really striking, solitary kind of way that without me waxing philosophically about it too much, it is like a hero's journey. You go off, you understand yourself. The flawed protagonist. Yeah, yeah. Flawed hero. And that's, of course, obviously relatable. It never hangs on that. And I'm just super impressed by that. I'm probably saying it way too complicated. And it's just, <laughs> it's, it's very relatable, especially for someone who, for young, sensitive people yeah. who look at the world and they know that they're at odds with it in whatever way, some ways inborn, and making their own place in it. You yeah. know, in Weird Life, you talk about finding a place where you can have like minds and express yourself, but it's never this aspirational off there somewhere. I'm going to, there's going to be, I'm going to find the horny radio place that pop music is about <laughs> wherever that exists. Yeah. It's Miami. You carve out this place for yourself by understanding yourself. Yeah. So yeah, it does sound like songs written as a practice in self-understanding and then executed in a way that is like musically expressing other parts of yourself. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like you get the whole picture eliminated of where you are and how you're feeling. Yeah. And, and just making strange connections and relations. Like I guess Exclaves of Belgium is kind of like a hallmark of my, my geographic interest where I just kind of say like, all right, I know a thing or two about geography. I don't know a thing or two about myself. Let's let's try to make some connections here. Just kind of building off some of these, using some of my geographic terms and thinking of uh, my placement in the world, like at odds with myself, with fucking government being out on the streets and shit. I mean, that's not what Exclaves of Belgium is about, just for example. Just finding these, these, these strange ties that I think um, create a strange contrast but still kind of ring true to the nature of finding yourself feeling at odds with the world and where you are in it. So was the cartography theme something that has been on your mind for a long time? Did you intentionally weave that in? Because it comes up like several times beyond those two tracks. Was that something you were aware of putting in there or did that just happen? It just kind of happened. Of course, that's the nature of Exclaves of Belgium. And what did the cartographer say? They both referenced that kind of theme, but I didn't intentionally do that. Let's just start writing stuff I know about. Maybe I'll find something about myself and, yeah. and what I think about the world. Is that something you think about a lot? Like placement, location? Yeah. Like there's an interest in like coordinates, going on Google Maps, going some random fucking place. Maybe that's what like brain activity is. I'm just like pinning somewhere, going there. What's this about? Or am I going to venture too deep? Am I going to go to the point of no return? Well, you know what show you're on, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we're yeah, in the maze. It's, it's, the, it's all the context of what you're going through. Yeah. You can put a coordinate on a map and you find some place that it's impossible for you to understand the context of that. Yeah. And people move through that space. They all make it their own space as they inhabit it. Like yeah. who you are when you're somewhere. Making sense out of new places you go whether it be traveling or, or just venturing in your own mind, just trying to make sense of everything. Yeah, carving out rooms. Yeah, and when you don't feel like you have a place or you haven't matured into a person that has to have a new context, it is wandering in empty places and trying to find guideposts that aren't there. Weird Life makes another cartography reference. Does it? At odds with, yeah. Um, <laughs> there you go, another unintentional moment. It's, it's discussing people. Oh, that's right. Stuck in their uh, 
conceptions of where they are and yeah. who, who that makes them. Where do you start? Where do you go? Do you just stay where you start? Why? Yeah. Yeah. And then you say, oh, you have bad topography. I'll try cartography. It's an album about figuring out where you are and how things lie. And it's an exercise in doing that. Mm. That's a perfect balance of trying to emote, put your feelings down on some kind of medium and then learn through that. Yeah. I mean, this, this record is just a compilation of existentialist thoughts that I have that I'm just like, hey, let's take a whole song out of this idea. Let's, let's make a whole song out of um, my insecurities with my teeth. Let's make a song about who I am. That could be obviously why Too Close for Comfort. Is that why you named it that? It's like, this is getting personal. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because it's kind of like this analogy of um, you're, you're in a bathtub and you're running the bath and then it starts overfilling. You get in the bath, water starts falling out. And you're like, oh, fuck, water's falling out. I'm freaking out. Oh, holy shit, I'm freaking out. I'm going too far. But then you just have to realize like, okay, it's a mess now, but what the hell ever. You know, like just coming to terms with some of the negative aspects of your own mind, some some of the trauma that you've been through, like not like freaking out about it, thinking you've gone too far, but to just learn from it, come to terms with what's happened, where you've gone, what you've done, rolling with the punches, if you will. Yeah, you have to get wet. Yeah, that's the boldness of the whole thing is, and that's why I asked you earlier, like, is it okay if I if I kind of lean a little bit on like you're young, you you just turned twenty one. A couple of months ago, you've been doing this since you were 14, refining this stuff and taking pretty clear steps in a, in a direction. You explored all these different kinds of electronic music, and now you're like digging tunnels into it. And that's really, uh, that's really amazing. Yeah. You've been able to successfully examine yourself and put that into your art. And that's just profound as hell to me. I can't, I can't shut up about it. Because <laughs> it's hard to do. It's hard to be honest about it. You started with these existentialist ideas and went from there. It wasn't like, I feel bad. Let me list the ways that I feel bad and put some chords to it. It's like, mm -hmm. I know you feel empty and I know you feel estranged from the world. And I know you could go down a hundred cliches of sad songwriter music. And that has a, it's not valueless, you know, but a more refined version is here's an idea. Let me explore that idea. And in a mystical way, be attuned to how that relates to my life. Mm-hmm. The magic principle is it's not about what you're doing. It's where it carries you. You do something and you make a decision or you start a process like a creative process and it carries you along this trajectory. And somewhere along that you separate out of yourself and you're able to change that trajectory from a higher vantage point. From the time I started the album to the time like now finishing it, I think I've learned a lot more about myself, where I am in the world, like how I started in the Exclaves of Belgium, my placement on the map where I've gone, what I've done. And it's interesting that there's, at the same time, you're, you're talking about being limited and having aspirations outside of this no place that you're in or that you were in. And then you get these awesome, soaring, sentimental songs, like Falcon is, is one of them. You get this awesome, traveling, big landscapes, like Falcon imagery. And that's sentimentally tied to another idea, but... There's such a breadth here, and you can see a progression of like, there's the self-oppression kind of pain stuff, and then there's the self-liberation with it. There's the self-isolation of an artist, and then you get all this emotional release from this. It never yeah. seems like intellectual or contrived. It's really honest music, mm -hmm. and that's the last I'll say about it. It worked. What you did worked for and you and for the, the art. 
Yeah, and what you do is you make it seem intentional, but but the artist knows that it just kind of happened through spontaneous moments of writing, aha moments of, yeah, yeah, holy shit, that's true about myself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's not like you architected all of this precisely into place. It was taking yourself into the tunnel of, of being vulnerable to the process. But, but stringing it all together, like tying everything together was the intentional process of yeah. everything. It's mature goddamn work. <laughs> it makes me glad when I hear you say like, I learned a ton about myself in doing this because then I know that whatever comes next for you is going to be a progression through this. Yeah. Not just in where you go musically, but what you're, what you know about yourself and what you're talking about. Like, I can't wait to hear what you do next. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're so right. There is kind of a progression, especially when you compare my first work, hoping for the worst to this record. You know, my first record was kind of about like letting things go, coming to terms with the reality and I think this record is kind of like why I had to come to terms, kind of explaining, digging deeper into those past life traumas, the ambiguous nature of life. Why is it so ambiguous? Why do I not know so much? And um, we'll see what happens next. Beyond the kind of pithy, too close for comfort, oh, this is, this is vulnerable, I'm getting, I'm getting personal here, that's what is required. You can't be comfortable. You can't settle for what you thought of yourself because once you decide to let that be enough, somewhere you know that you could do more mm -hmm. or that you could be different or be more. And it's when you start making the decision to be comfortable and to push that mirror away from you, mm -hmm. then you start on this horrible, slippery slope of compromise until you forget that you had a choice in doing all that. You settle into a thing, you get into the rut and then that's who you are. So I really like that layer that it brings to it is like, oh, this was necessary. It has to be vulnerable and it has to be right up close to me because otherwise I'm just going to leave the pile of stuff that I, you know, you pulled everything out of the toy drawer and now you have to look at all of your memories and, you know, the mementos yeah. from third grade and you're like, oh God, how does this make sense? And if you just decide to not play that game, then you've lost all that stuff. Yeah, and you do it in increments. First of all, I wrote the songs in increments. I feel like, each song on the record is an increment of not pulling out the toys, but but organizing the toys. It's each step of getting closer and closer. Not too close, not too close for comfort, TM, but just getting closer and closer towards understanding and being at peace with the mess and organizing it. And yeah, organizing is all about decisions. Mm -hmm. It's very much an album full of decisions. So you sent me some background information with which to bio. Yes. So I'm going to bastardize that information and try not to get any of it wrong. You started making music when you were 14. Yes. And that first album, Hoping for the Worst, that was a progression of all of those things up until you were about 18 when you put that out. Yeah, it was just an accumulation of thoughts and self-discovery. Oh, don't get me started on thoughts and self... Okay. But <laughs> you told me you, you, you went for a walk one day in the woods and found a copy of Ableton growing out of the ground amazingly beautiful sprout fresh for the harvest you pluck it you brush the dirt off of it and you take a bite you mentioned that you and your brother were into man man which we'll talk about man man in a minute what pulled you toward the electronic side because i can tell in some places on hoping for the worst where there is it's almost like you went full circle but you had to find a bunch of this you had to find your sound in the process yeah exactly no it was it's a goddamn adventure. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I wrote all the songs from the time when I was like 14 to 16. 
had it all planned out. It's like it's going to be these beautiful piano melodies, these gorgeous piano tones, this organic sound. And then I get Ableton, and I'm like, whoa. Oh. This is really cool. It's like, what are these sounds I'm making? This is, this is unlike anything I've ever heard. Just through a bunch of messing around and experimentation and, like, drum machine patterns and, like, 808 hits, shit like that. Because, like, I, I had the idea of making everything organic. Like, I played drums, too. So I was like, I'm, I'm just going to record directly in just me playing drums. And then I find, like, the drum patterns and drum machine shit. And I'm like, ah, this is too good to give up. And so I just kind of take... I, I find, like, VSTs, and I, I think I even used some, like, really shitty Ableton presets and just kind of threw all the sounds together. I, I kind of had no idea what I was doing, but uh, but I was just having a lot of fun. You know, just like a kid having fun producing my first album. I, I guess just the translation of having this idea of a lot of, like, organic sounds and then having it be just this electronic cacophony, I think, caused another, like, two years to produce and figure everything out. But through messing around, I also wrote, I think, a couple songs through just, like, those synth sounds. Like, I most of the songs were originally written for piano, but a couple, like, I think, extra celestial, and maybe one other I wrote with Ableton in mind and messing around with synth sounds. And interestingly enough, it doesn't sound like patchwork. Yeah. Like the voice is really strong and it has been from the beginning. Mm -hmm. That's super compelling. Yeah. I mean, and, and the thing about hoping for the worst, a lot of the songs deal with my insecurities. And I think overall, my, my, my singing voice is one of them. So for a lot of the tracks, I use a vocoder. Mm -hmm. Like I found out that Ableton had a built-in vocoder. So I'm like, hey, this is like the perfect remedy. This sounds really cool. It goes with the electronic music and it's kind of hiding my voice in a way and making it sound good, but it's not like auto-tune where it's obviously like, yeah, you know. It didn't strike me as hiding behind it, but looking back at it, was it the deepness that, like what scared you about it? Um, a part of it was the deepness. I hadn't practiced singing, so I, I just didn't have a confident voice like I do with Too Close for Comfort because... I think it's a different attitude to, like, I mentioned the insecurity, the content of insecurity and hoping for the worst, and I think that kind of translated to my vocals, whereas I came into Too Close for Comfort with the idea of, hi, my name is William Wallace, and I have this to say, and so I'm yeah. going to say it, and I'm going to say it loud. You know, I think it's just those different attitudes that I think have that contrasting feel. Yeah, and that comes through really strong as a good story. It's a, an observable progression, and it, it was really refreshing. I think I had heard everything else but Hoping for the Worst until recently, and I went back and listened to it, preparing for this and just trying to get a better grasp of all of your work, and it was so cool. Ugh. That's where you came from, and I don't know, one of the first things that really struck me about this, all these new songs was like, man, your voice is like right there. It's so bold, and I wasn't expecting it at all. That takes so much to get to. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, I, I don't even know what kind of awakened inside of me to have that attitude. I think I was just like, man, a lot of shit's going on in the world. And maybe if, maybe if, I, maybe if I sing louder, I'll contribute more than if I sing quiet. So you sound smarter when you speak louder, right? I also love the progression and comparing um, this work to my first work. I haven't done it recently, but when, when I was really getting too close for comfort, like, getting it together, getting these songs down. I went and listened to Hoping for the Worst, and I'm like, oh, man, 
this is such a such an interesting i don't know how to can't put my finger on the this feeling i'm getting but it's such a not refreshing just like a very telling kind of transition i think yeah makes me proud you want to tell me a little bit about your family because I know you, your brother was a big part in getting you into music. Mm-hmm. And that's so cool that you had a guiding partner, kind of. I called him my sensei in the last track. Really? The, the first half of the track is talking about a, a young boy talking about his sensei. And like, where will, where will he be when his sensei leaves? Wow. Uh, that was just kind of preparing writing to life. Uh, my family, that has a huge part to do with my writing and my art. We grew out of a, out of adversity. Um, my father left the family when I was, uh, I think, four. I mean, he was pretty in and out towards the end. But when I was four, he packed up and left. And and my mom had to take the role of a dad. And my brother and sister were old enough to be like, what the hell? What the fuck? I'm so mad at him. This sucks. But um, I was young enough to the point where my mom didn't have to tell me the whole story, but to just kind of shield me from from the horrible tragedies of the reality and i think that was the right move you know because how why why would you want to ruin this 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 little child's perception of life that you would grow up knowing the the shitty situation and so and and i think that just of, of course i'm not blaming her but that just kind of um gave me a very complicated relationship with my dad because i grew up loving him and now i know the reality and it's like I don't know how to hate him through my dad leaving me my mom my older sister my older brother all kind of had to we're the birds in the nest we had to huddle together to stay yeah. warm really keep close in this really shitty situation and so we all have a really good relationship with each other we moved into this place in southwest Virginia this town Bristol it's a very shitty town but we found this little safe haven of a home Colomo it was this house with a huge field, woods and shit, like just isolated from everyone else. And we just kind of spent years in that house to ourselves and just kind of healing from everything that happened in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Was it a pretty transparent relationship? I'm interested in what the process was, was like for you trying to like reconcile those two halves. What you didn't find out until later when you were kind of mature enough to process it. Mm-hmm. And then what was there for you already? Was there an attitude known of like, we deal with our feelings, we talk about things? See, emotions have always been really complicated for me. I've never known how to talk about them. I've never known how to like approach my mom and like talk about what happened. And like emotions have always just been really ambiguous to me. Like I can rarely decipher emotions a lot of times when I feel emotion, I want to numb it. And an, an almost like unfamiliar thing, a not regular occurrence to feel. Like, I'm <laughs> sounding like I'm an emotionalist fucking robot, but like, it's always just been really weird. Because I've just, a lot of my life, I've just felt like, like kind of confused, just kind of ambiguous as to what I'm feeling and how to talk about them. And that kind of transitions to too close for comfort, what we've yeah. been talking about, kind of dipping our foot into the tub and coming to terms with everything and anything, everything in between. (laughs) Yeah, literally digging up the contents of the conscious is just what you're aware of, what you can say you know about or that you're experiencing. Yeah. The subconscious is all the stuff that you don't, that isn't in your awareness. 
it's the alchemy of bringing up all of the stuff, realizing things, uncovering information, mm-hmm. paying attention to your inner state and what comes out of a creative process or your yeah, it takes a level of introspection to kind of pull out that subconsciousness. Yeah, and patience with that. Yeah, you talked about having to reconcile the idea of your dad and what it means as like as an adult. Yeah, that's kind of what cartographer is about. I'm kind of um giving my dad this role of like rapacious stuck up his own ass kind of position he is the cartographer he is the one that locks himself in the basement he is the one that doesn't give a shit about his daughter or wife like i guess just kind of storytelling cartographer and dinosaur teeth are similar in the way in the sense that their stories told through third person yeah and i think through that kind of storytelling it's kind of a way to not get too personal to have it you know entertaining it's not upfront what it's about but they do ring true do you think having to do that emotional labor kind of out on your own almost from scratch do you notice skills or tendencies maybe from that that showed up in songwriting like how you approach actually create like the the craft of the songs mm-hmm. and trying to find parallels there of the going in process yeah, I I think there are unintentional parallels that you find through kind of writing about this uncomfortable subject. It's not something you normally think about. Like, it's something that you have to put yourself through to get out of your comfort zone that you wouldn't normally do. And I think finding a medium to translate that to is kind of discovering in a way. Is your brother the oldest in your of the siblings or is your sister older than My him? My sister Okay. Is. So you guys spent a lot of time listening to music. You were really influenced by his taste. You mentioned Man Man and Pavement. Was it like an outdoor kind of raised by nature thing? You guys hanging out a lot outside? It was more so inside. I feel like we were, um, I don't know about him, but I was like an internet raised (laughs) Zoomer kid. Have Have you watched Stranger Things? Yeah. Do you remember that scene? I think it was in like the first episode or something where like, you remember the brothers Will and John? Yeah. We share their names, their relationship really Whoa. reminds me. Of... <laughs> yeah, I know. I was thinking that about 20 seconds ago. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Sitting on the bed with the Clash record. Yes, that is, that's exactly. That's it. nuts that you said that. <laughs> no, yeah. exactly. That's crazy. I think that's a good way to summarize our relationship and how we grew with each other. What's the age difference? Six years. How old were you when you got turned on to Man Man and Pavement? Um, I went to my first Modest Mouse show when I was eight with him and my mom and my sister. Damn. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. We, we saw Modest Mouse, R.E.M. and The National all in one show. Whoa. Goddamn amazing. Was that your first concert? Yeah. Hot damn. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. So I was like seven or eight. Yeah. That would have made him like 13, 14 years old. Yeah. That's crazy. Because that's such a weird age gap. Like, me and my brother are three years apart, mm. and going from, like, when you're seven or eight, your 12-year-old brother doesn't want to hang out with you. You know, like, you know what I mean? That kind of, that age gap is hard to break. Yeah, yeah. That's and amazing that you had, like, that nurturing kind of relationship with yeah, that and, distance. And my brother and sister are three years apart, and so I'm nine years apart from my sister, so I've always been, like, the baby, the baby TM. It's an interesting place to be. It is. You're, you're the caboose. You're the... <laughs> Yeah, you get to see all the stuff coming up for you. Cartographer is really interesting because, and maybe it's just me projecting onto it, but that seems like a cautionary tale for a creative obsessive as Mm. well. 
Mm-hmm. Did you see it like that at all? Was there any kind of projecting yourself, maybe your shadow into that character? Yeah. Um, I mean, I wrote the daughter of that story kind of like as me, this kind of like figure being abandoned, ignored by this self-obsessed cartographer. Because my dad was like a fucking like local renowned surgeon, like one of the top surgeons at the local hospital in Virginia. And then he just decides to just like get hooked on like crack cocaine and shit. And he's crashed and burned, lost his job, lost his license, moved out started the life of a crackhead and just kind of this crashing and burning of this high up character is parallel. And surgeon's one of those kind of all-consuming jobs anyway. Why cartographer in that? I can understand the context of previously talking about location and, and that kind of thinking. What about that as like a consuming job? Just where did that idea come from? That's fascinating. Um, It's not so much the idea of the job. It's more so associating the person with the position. I mean, I know my dad, but I don't know him. He's like a map that I'm trying to decipher. So I give him this job as a cartographer making these otherworldly maps that I just can't put my finger on, that I can't grasp, you know? Tell me more about that. <laughs> like, because what struck me first about it was like, do we need maps still? It's <laughs> not like you're, that's like the ultimate self-important, maybe a critic is another one, but... Yeah, it's like I decide what the world looks like and, mm-hmm. you know, I make these decisions, but ultimately they don't really have any effect anymore. Yeah. That's a super interesting. There's so many parts to that theme. That's there, so are, cool. there, there, there are a lot of parts. So, you know, it feels like this kind of trauma I've gone through this position because it's so, it's not a unique position. Of course, there are other people who've lost father figures in their life, but like the fact that I was kind of shielded from the reality that I kind of lived a life of blissful ignorance. To a degree, it's unique to me. It's emotionally unique. And, and there's no, like, guide for, like, I can't look up how to get over being shielded from right. losing a father. I have to refer to, like, an old-fashioned map or some shit. And then it's like, how, how the hell does this work? And with maps, you kind of associate it with going on a journey. Goddamn Frodo and Bilbo Baggins didn't take an iPhone with their GPS on it. <laughs> So, so you just take a map and it's like this map kind of represents a journey that you go on but is this journey is this journey a good thing is this journey a bad thing is it perilous is it sa- is it a safe journey and I, I just think there's a lot of ideas that come from kind of associating a person with a map that's yeah. kind of what i did with cartographer a person being so obsessed with intellectualizing that that they don't journey yes that they degrade from lack of awareness Yes, and then there's that aspect of being so hung up in this this luxurious position, this position where you get to decide everything, because that's what you do if, if you're making maps, you're deciding what the land is and what you're showing on the map. You could be fucking narcissistic in that I control everything and, and I make the paths, and I think that's the kind of like personality that's like a sociopathic narcissist. It rings true to my story, I guess. That's fascinating. Probably bastardizing my thoughts here, but doing the best I can here, sipping my yeah, coffee. That's what art's all about. No, I, I feel, <laughs> and that, that might be part of our connection. Yeah, we had to figure it out for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And like, what do we use as a reference to figure things out? Yeah, because yeah. sometimes it's just that ignorance turns into confusion mm-hmm. or just lack. Of, it's just unconsciousness. You know, I don't know if you had a similar experience, but around puberty, you become 
self, like socially aware, like aware of how you maybe not measure up against other people, but that there is a dynamic there, that it's not as simple as being a kid. It's like, oh, you want to play? Yeah, I'll play. It's like, no, it's not like that anymore. <laughs> like there's whole, there's all this adult social context in it now, even as young as 13 or 14, you start figuring that out. Yeah. And I didn't know, I didn't know any of that stuff. It, well, I wasn't socialized properly. So yeah, I really connect with that idea of having to make your own decisions about what's going to be important to you. Yeah. Strangely free from pressures or, you know, it's different than having like an overbearing expectant family pushing you to do all these things. It's more just like, I have to figure this out on my own. Emotional DIY. Yeah. I think that creates, it creates maniacs if it doesn't create introspective people. Like if you deny it, then you just end up projecting mess. And the only way away from that is through it. And then I think it makes it, it makes or break like a, a person or like a family. And I think in my case, I'm, I'm thankful for the fact that it made our family structure with such a horrible occurrence, you know? Yeah, that's amazing that y'all are close and that there is so much solidarity I'm certainly not complaining or, or trying to turn it into a therapy session. Oh, it's no, more no. just that's how you get it's how you get to where we are, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. We've had to think about ourselves because we, we had to to be mentally healthy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad we're friends, William. Well, me too, Jackie. I'm glad it worked out this way. Yeah. Who is this album for? Who are you singing to? Myself. Instant answer. I mean, I could have just not released this album and would be totally fine because I think it's more so just for my own well-being. But, but I just thought, hey, maybe, the, maybe, maybe what I'm writing here is cool. Maybe this sounds cool. Maybe other people will enjoy it. Well, I think it's all of the above. You've done a singular and exceptional thing. It's been very good to have you. And good to know you. Playing on your record and joining in on the... I'm just glad people are going to hear it. I'm glad to have any part in that. I'm very excited. Very thankful for our connection, for the sounds we release thankful for the birds, thankful for the trees and the bees and everything in between. Yeah. What are we going to hear next? Um, Exclaves of Belgium.